Welcome to the Life Process Program YouTube channel, or if you're tuning into a podcast app, welcome to the LPP podcast. The Life Process Program, LPP, is an online coaching program developed by Dr. Stanton Peel. And at LPP, we help people get past addiction and move on with life. You're listening to a weekly segment of our podcast called Sundays with Stories. Every morning, my co-host, Dr. Stanton Peel, and I summarize addiction-related news of the week, or we get questions informed by our LP participants. Um, but we give these stories a fresh spin. We focus on the fact that an overwhelming majority of addicted people mature out of their addiction over time. And most people do so without any fanfare. So we want to shine a light on these people and their stories that are missed due to a media insistence, cultural insistence, that addiction stories have to be tragic ones and that even success stories have to be framed as a person hanging on for dear life and always struggling to keep demons at bay, no matter how much time has passed. So to learn more about the psychology of addiction, as we see it, and common sense strategies for developing greater balance in life, visit our website at lifeprocessprogram.com. Once again, my name is Zach Rhodes, and I'm here with the creator of our Life Process Program, psychologist, Dr. Stanton Peel. Good morning, Stanton. How are you? Hi, Zach. Good to see you. This week, you, you let me roll with this. I've had, building up for a few months, several of our clients are uh, middle-aged men, middle to, to late-aged men. And out of, um, I'd say nearly a dozen of these clients, they're on board with our message at LPP. In fact, one person said, I know that meaning and purpose in life is a bulwark against addiction, just like LPP says. But in this guy's case, but I'm 56 years old. You know, I have failed relationships, estranged kids. It's really hard to find meaning. And so well, a conversation with this person and, and with these people who are bringing up these questions is something like, yeah, I'm on board. I, I believe you. I, I truly believe that meaning and purpose in life is a path forward and away from addiction. But man, I need really extra help finding meaning in life. And in particular, the thing, the themes that come up that are people are finding difficult are, are uh, suggestions to figure out what it means to you to find meaning in uh, work and maybe hobbies outside of work, friendships, intimate relationships, and financial stability. This is not a comprehensive list of the things that we say, hey, let's, let's think about these things and how do they fit into your life. But these are one, two, three, four, five, five points that people tend to bring up again and again, especially when they're men in middle to late age. And they say, yes, these things, but, and then there's always a, but it's hard for me because. Now, on one hand, that's just, that's just what clinical or coaching or therapeutic work is. I mean, someone is coming to you saying, I have an issue. So anyone could dump out, well, why don't you just do these things? Well, a, a client who's being thoughtful will should and will say, um, yeah, those things sound good, but I'm struggling with them. So how do I respond to this in my life? And you've mentioned before, and I agree with you, that there's not a good one-size-fits-all answer to these questions. But I thought that we could go you know, a little bit beyond, kind of pull out some common themes about the but, you know, what's going on in people's lives, lives especially in this milieu, this genre, this uh, age group that could make doing these things difficult to cling on to work, hobbies, friends, 
relationships and financial stability. So if it's all right with you, I, the way I laid it out is I'm thinking about each one of these things that we say, if you can get a handle on this and really think forward about them, um, you will find that this these meaningful activities usurp addiction. And I thought I would I would go with the, you know, what could make it hard for people so that we can kind of respond to that at a somewhat general level, if that sounds good with you. Go ahead, proceed. So the, the first thing on that list is work. So yes, if you can find work and if you have work and you can find work meaningful, then that is a good beginning. I mean, that's something that, what did Freud say? The meaning of life to work and to love. And uh, there's a clip on you of you on YouTube saying, you have to work pretty hard to beat that. Well, there, uh, people have been saying to me, and I think this is pretty common among this age group. Yeah, I work. Uh, so that's good. I'm not excited about work anymore. I mean, I'm in my 50s. I'm just starting a new gig or I don't have a lot of education and I'm making the money I can make doing the work I can do. And it's mundane. I'm going to offer a response to that or something like I kind of melded all my responses that I've given to people like this all together in one little easy one short clip. I'm going to give my response and I'd like to hear what you think or your add ons. Um, the questions that I've asked people who say, OK, I know work is important, but Jesus, I'm you know, 55, 60, 65. I'm doing work, but it's not, what do you mean work meaningful? I, I can't find meaningful work beyond what I have. Um, and my questions to them are something like uh, two parts. One is, is there a way that you can make what you're calling a mundane job meaningful or creative or interesting day by day? In other words, can you think about what you bring to the table as a person and incorporate that into work. Martin Seligman has, um, in one of his books about optimism and prospective thinking, um, has uh, a section where he talks about different people in different professions and a lot of blue collar professions. And he's talking about factory workers and barbers. There's a culture of people who cut hair, for example, who you know, they feel like it's their role, not only to cut somebody's hair, but to be somebody that is a listener. A lot of times bartenders are in that position too. Like I'm a good people person and I can listen to people's problems, which makes them feel like, which gives an add on to their job responsibilities. You know, the job responsibility might be cut hair, take the money, or it might be make these kinds of drinks, get money. But if somebody infuses their own meaning into that work, then they can roll with that and make work a little bit more interesting. And so that's, those are reflective questions I have for people. What are the kinds of things you do outside of work that make your experiences more interesting? How can you impose those or, or um, intertwine those with your work experience? And then I, I'm asking, how can you use your best skills at work or in addition to work maybe? So that kind of gets onto the hobbies section so that you're making the experience meaningful and effortful and rewarding. In other words, some people have work that maybe they don't like, but there's other kind of work that they could do. It's like a satellite and that's enough to make things meaningful. Or on the other hand, they have a work experience that would be mundane if not for bringing their own meaning into it. 
And so those are the kinds of questions. That's not an answer because it's not specific because that would be silly to try to make a specific, uh, give specific advice for something like this to a general audience. But it's the kind of questions you might start to ask and you might explore with the client. Uh, your, your take on that. Well, uh, what, the, the broader thing you're describing is bringing yourself into your work, giving meaning to your work emanating from yourself. And you're talking about strategies for doing that. For example, well, what are the things you like and what are you interested in? And how can you make that a part of your work? That's what you're describing. For example, if you're a person who likes talking with people, well, there are a number of jobs, hairdressers, bartenders, where that can really be a big part of that. But it's almost like a philosophy of life, don't you think, where people say, well, I'm just going to invest this activity, which may be more or less meaningless with my values and with my energy. Right. For example, I have a good friend who's a bartender and, you know, they have to do 10 million little, they have to slice up the celery or the olives and they have to clean the bar and all. And he really gets into that. You know, of course, people give that a negative label of OCD, but the, the activity itself only derives meaning from what, how you see it and how you invest yourself in it. That's a good lead into hobbies, which is another thing that comes up. Uh, people think about this in two categories. There's work and then there are hobbies. And both what you and I were saying at some level has gotten to the point of, well, how do you invest yourself at work? And also what value skills can you bring to the table? There's some overflow there because maybe you can't think of, maybe you're blocked from thinking about how do you bring something that you're really interested in into your workspace. Um, and for that, that, there's an idea of making some, well, actually, let me start here. One of my favorite things that I've heard somebody is doing is that uh, they're basically a paper pusher and they make copies <laughs> in a workspace. And they discovered at, at age 60 something, discovered TikTok. And the TikTok for a few years ago was an app for like 13 year old kids. But now adults, everyone just kind of scrolls those, whatever they are, minute long or shorter videos. And people can make a point, you know, uh, show themselves doing something. This guy at work has made kind of a comical TikTok feature where every day he makes a video of him doing a task at work and show how he does it. And it's either an ironic kind of, well, isn't this fun? <laughs> and it's entertaining to people. So he's providing as a hobby entertainment for people about something mundane. It's kind of like the show, The Office. Um, so that's interesting. That's a hobby. And th but it's also something he's doing at work or he's and showing way, somebody. He's almost look, zeroing in on his activity. Right. Well, he's given the meeting by breach, bro broaching the rest of his life. Right. And he's, I used, uh, when I used to go, I used to swim every morning. I used to go up to Fort Tilden and I kept running into a guy who was a groundskeeper and, you know, he would be clipping away hedges from around the fence. And I was just 
so impressed by how he made each one of these activities self-contained. Mm. Um, it gave him a chance. He was outdoors, of course. Um, he was having a beginning to it and having an end to it. And it was something constructive that marginally improved this vast New York Queens environment. And I, I just reflected on how he was an, as old as me almost. I, w I was just so impressed with how a person doing just mundane daily tasks could invest so much in them. There's a second part of this person who makes TikToks. I won't linger on it for more for longer than that. he um, makes these short videos. Sometimes they're comical. And like you said, sometimes he's actually zeroing in on the activity. A little bit of something for everyone. So if there's a creative side to somebody doing a mundane task, it's kind of kicking open the doors for creativity even though this is like a, a nothingness thing that, that they're doing for work. On the other hand, he make some of the things he does are showing uh, videos about how to, because some people don't know these skills. So it's actually a tactical uh, video that he's making for people. So just an example, and one way or another, it's worthwhile to zero in on the thing that you're doing. And depending on what you're like temperamentally or what you value, maybe you value doing things really well. So you can do each thing really, really well. You can maybe try to be the best at that thing, or you can make things silly, fun, or creative. So you could do something in a, a mundane thing in a way that other people don't do it. And of course, you can showcase it. People at uh, some of my clients who are 50s, 60s, who try to think about hobbies are thinking, well, a, a hobby was something when I was a kid, like an extracurricular sport or uh, running, which, you know, my legs hurt. Or it was like a chess club, and I don't know any adults who want to do that. You know, so the the pushback is sort of, or the the ask is, I have interests. It's really difficult to get started on a hobby for all sorts of reasons. You know, maybe it's I'm aching, maybe it's I'm, it's because in my later age I can't think about how to, I can't think about the trajectory of starting something and then building on it. Sometimes it's just easier when they're bored to drink or smoke or do drugs or whatever it is, engage in pornography. Um, and my question that I ask them all the time is that, well, what are you interested in? Of course, that matters. What do you feel like you have time for or what, what would you be willing to make time for? And how could you start a hobby that is enough of a risk that, you know, you wouldn't if you started it, you'd, you'd want to do it proper. And if it failed, it probably wouldn't feel great, but also enough of, you know, low enough barrier that um, it's not going to be the end of the existential if this thing doesn't work out. And also, how can you think about developing a hobby that builds on itself where one step informs the next? And how can you be doing it with or for other people? That's a lot in the same basket, but I remember a man, I think we put this uh, in our book out, Growing Addiction, um, a conversation I had with a man who was an English professor who was just, he felt like he was more creative and more intelligent than his job at a community college entailed. And so when he told me about his interests and things that he likes to do, um, and he's quite a talker, he came to it as, on his own, although I put the category out there. I said, you know, there are people with podcasts and you just for a podcast, you all you really have to do is click a button on your phone and record and put it on the internet. I mean, 
I could imagine, I said to this person, I can imagine you telling me this story. If I'm so interested in it, who knows who else would be interested in it? Is that something like that, something you would do? And this guy wound up, you know, uh, podcasting, so talking, kind of ranting and publishing it. And also that helped his creative juices flow to the point that he started writing. And once he started something, it did build on itself. It gave him more ideas and more things to do. So he was, that's a way he was doing something for other people, despite whether he knew them or not. And uh, because people were listening in and it's writing that he did that helped himself and focused on others. So there's always something that you can do starting with your interests that you can begin because beginning is probably <laughs> lends to itself to interesting hobbies more than doing nothing. And also that he could sink his teeth into because he enjoyed it and that gave value to other people. So what you're doing is you're turning people into themselves and people don't usually say, oh, nothing in the world interests me. They say, we talked about work. Well, my work doesn't involve my interest or they talk about a hobby, but oh, I don't have enough time or energy to do that. And you get them to reflect on the question of, well, what do you like to do? What are you interested in? What is meaningful to you? And get them to be, we talked first about applying that at work. How can you project those skills and interests into your daily work activity? Or in this hobby case, you're saying, well, what are the ways that you can manifest the things that are really of interest to you? Hmm. you but first you focus them, tell me what you like. And everybody's got some kind of an answer to that, but they're discouraged about finding an outlet for that. And you almost engage them in a kind of a day-to-day -day kind of a discussion where you're saying, well, how can you take that skill and apply it in some kind of an activity that you that you could find time to do? And by the way, in all of these cases, there is, uh, besides the um, turning into oneself, uh, there is sort of an executive functioning blip that's happening where I think, uh, and I work with kids, I do this all the time. I think about, well, if I'm asking a kid to do something that involves a process, I want them to know, or it's important for them to know, what does the end result sort of look like, even though if that's a fuzzy, low resolution kind of idea, what will this look like when I'm done? And then kind of work backwards. What is the first step to doing this thing? That I, I think that's where coaching is valuable, is that I'm able to help. We at LPP are able to help people. What do you enjoy? What could this look like if you pursued something you enjoyed? What would it look like to get started? The getting started piece is pretty hard. Like allowing people to believe in themselves enough to say, I'm important enough, this is important enough in life to get started. Um, so friend, making friends is another difficulty people have where although people who have commented recently are aware that friendship is a boon, of course, associated with other people, lack of isolation, uh, being pro-social, they'll say something like, I have really difficulty putting myself out there. You know, I've been through, I don't know how to start. I mean, do I call someone up and say, will you be my friend? Do I try to join a group? I've been through friendships and a lot of them have dissipated and 
many of them have failed. So, and at some level, maybe it's painful to take the risk of getting myself involved in social situations, or it feels awkward because at 62, whatever it is, people don't usually think about, well, let me go do a friends making activity. Um, my my open-ended thinking there is, or a question that I might ask there is, looking back to hobbies, can your hobbies or your work actually inform your social activities? Um, are there are there things at work and people who also enjoy things or have the same grievances even as you at work? Or are there people involved in a hobby that you're creating who are interested in the hobby as well that you can sort of, okay, they're acquaintances. And so you're interested in the same kinds of things. And at some level, if you're doing it long enough, can you, let's say, promote can you promote your colleagues to something like friends? So you say, we're interested in this thing. I wonder if we'd be interested in another thing too. I wonder if I could share something more with you. Or can you promote your acquaintances to something like friends? And also, you know, can you keep and appreciate the acquaintances and colleagues and other social interactions that you have, thinking about each kind of interaction you have with the person as a positive one rather than one that you is mechanical? So in other words, that's two uh, sides of the same coin. On the one hand, you're saying to people, what's really meaningful to you and how do you apply that? You began this whole scheme by talking about, well, they're 50 or 60 year old men who've had a lot of disappointment in their life. They may be alienated from their children or their family. So on the one hand, we're investing things with meaning. On the other hand, for want of a better term, we're being less discriminating. You're Mm. saying, well, why don't you just see what your life involves, what is out there, and just make the best of that. Just take a positive outlook to that. It's almost like, uh, well, uh, David Brooks wrote a column about people who were in despair, which is, you know, deaths of despair is a big concept now. It's almost as though when you've thrown out or when you're shorn of a lot of critical things in your life you find yourself without family or you know without some of the major uh supports that that in a way gives you a freedom to approach everything as being interesting and positive and investing those things with importance i do understand the clinging to failed interactions or friendships or something in the past and i, and I do understand you know, as one person put it, I'm I'm 62 working in a profession where most people are 30, and um, I'm I'm already trying I'm already wanting to be taken seriously, and um, I would be interested in getting together with colleagues or seeing you know associating with other people, bringing the conversation to an elevated, more interesting level. And on the other hand, uh, I'm afraid to take that risk because I'm already the old guy. I don't want to be the old weird guy. So that that's a way you could look at it. uh, uh, Feelings of embarrassment and failure, Mm -hmm. you know, you just have to put yourself out there. Yeah. Uh, So the the way that. Go on. Well, the way that I that's exactly what. And and of course, you don't if someone's saying I have fear and embarrassment and we're saying, well, don't have fear and embarrassment. That's not a that's not a good clinical approach. But what? But it's true. But the the thing that I do with people is 
well, let's take, let's run an experiment, you know, let's start small. So you're, if we're talking about um, bringing the conversation to the next level and saying, you know, you're, you're talking about the coffee machine all day, but it's somebody that you think you're interested in. Can you talk about what's going on at home or can you, whatever it is, can you have a more personal, friendly conversation? And so you pick a person, you pick a situation and say, let's try that. You know, you don't have to turn into a new person, a more like the social guy who wasn't yesterday, but you could, you know, let's take the convert wherever you are with this. Can you take it one step further in a context? And then since we have this coaching relationship, can you report back? Tell me how it went. And that way you're doing an experiment. You're doing a thing in a context for a reason. And um, we can talk through it about it in a natural way and find good parts of optimistic parts of that wait reasons to do something differently or keep doing what you're doing or not. So that's, that's a strategy I have. I, I'm, I'm, you might not want to go the, that clinical route or the motivational interviewing or cognitive therapy route, but um, I'm, I'm interested in what, what your tricks are to getting through to somebody that way who's hitting a brick wall. It's fun. We're at a time now where it's become harder to talk to strangers for one mm. reason or another. There's the kind of intrusion thing, and then there's a kind of a pandemic thing. But you can still work within that context. I, I was impressed. One person did a study where they said, talk to the person next to you in the subway. It was the Chicago subway where people sit abreast of each other. In New York, they sit face uh, along two long walls. Mm -hmm. And contrary to every other experiment, which ends up being, well, 58% liked it and 37% didn't like it, every single subject in his study, whether they talked to somebody that was completely unlike them, older or a different race, or somebody that looked very facilitative, said, you know, that was kind of fun. That was really interesting and entertaining. And the other person really responded to it. So even in the current pandemic environment, taking those risks are good. On the other hand, what we've been talking about is being able to say to yourself, well, I've done something, I've reached out, I've tried to be interesting as best I can. And if the other person doesn't respond to it, well, it's just not a reflection on me. The topic I wanted to introduce is you and, uh, and me both. On the one hand, we're very much, I'm terribly motivated by one larger purpose around addiction, but both of us get involved in an awful lot of things. I mean, you're a, paragon of that and so I, I got somewhere in here I was going to say well how do you find so many purposes I, and I was going to you know turn to the topic of uh I was going to turn to that song the Pete Seeger song to and it's in the Bible it's the best part of the Bible to everything and Pete Seeger had to turn 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 there is a season turn 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 and a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time a plan to plan, a time to reap, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to laugh, a time to weep. Everything has a purpose, really. I'm, and I mean, I know you're in love with your 
immediate family, with your family of origin, your wife's family, you're involved with your work, you're involved with your music. We haven't even touched on everything that you're involved in. People might say, well, how do you, how do you have time for all these different things or don't you use yourself up? But what you're doing is what we're talking about is applying yourself and finding purpose in every different segment of your life in every different interest and area. Well, now I have, um, to the extent that people want to know about me, well, how do you do it? They might ask. And, and I, I don't think I'm usual, although I, I love my life. I'm interested in music and I do it professionally. I, I pretty much turn things that I do into professions and I've had a, a strange way of going about it. Like I, I taught myself how to play music and then years later after I played and started making money playing in front of people, then I learned music theory. Um, you know, I'm doing this coaching program, although I have no, I, di I didn't go to college to do clinical work with people with addictions. I, I did that started doing this because I linked up with you, became really interested in it. And every time I find something fascinating, I, I grip onto it and pursue it and to the extent that it's interesting to me. And then I have, of course, my friendships in every one of those settings or my acquaintances in every one of those settings. And I continue to be curious in them. And I continue to, um, that, that sort of drives me. So as much as I'm curious about things where people might have said, well, that's ADHD, you're focused on too many things. I'm kind of, it, it, they're all encompassing. All of the things that I'm doing in my life come into one big purpose for me, including my family and including uh, friendships that I have with people. And those clients, uh, the, the response I usually get, although it could be something like must be nice, a more pessimistic response is usually something like, I, I'm really happy for you. Like people see that as that would, that would really be nice. Then again, you're, you, Zach, are in your 30s. I'm in my 60s. I've tried this before. I, I haven't done it. I don't think I'm going to have a flourishing music career. But the point remains the same, that it's not the things that I'm doing. It's my approach to them that kind of feed on themselves in a positive way, I would say, in that I, I take an interest in things and people. And I... I take How risks do you deal and put with myself up there. Disappointment or being shot down or being given negative feedback, either about yourself or what you've produced. Do you have a scheme for responding to not being responded to? I try to take compliments and criticism in the same way. So I'm human and I enjoy positive, I enjoy affirmation and I'm human and I don't super enjoy um feedback meant to be barbed at me but i do take critique i do learn from people when they say couldn't you do it this way and i do think of, it does teach me something if i really believe in something that i'm doing especially mm -hmm. if i know that i'm right or i know that i'm going a, a direction with it and somebody turns that idea down i ask them about why they're turning it down if, if someone who will it's who's able to have a back and forth and i learned something i either learned that okay maybe i could try it their way or i learned that this is not a person who's uh taking the time to understand where i'm coming from 
So I'm not going to take that so seriously that I'm going to let it thwart my effort in this direction. And I so think, I think sort of dialing back in yourself and saying to yourself, well, I'm a person of value. I've done enough valuable things in my life that this is not meaning that I'm right. Right. I just heard an interview with somebody. I don't especially listen to his music, but I heard an interview with Weird Al Yankovic. <laughs> he didn't get a ton of positive feedback in his life. His parents were supportive, but they thought he should get a real job. And uh, well, the funniest thing was they got him an accordion to play music with, which is not <laughs> yeah. a pop thing, but he said, well, I got an accordion, I'll play that. Um, and he made it. Way Sharon, he made one song and he went to a couple of agents and they said, oh, that's really great. That's going to be your one song. You know, there's usually uh, one hit wonder. They come up with some clever idea. And so people would say, I like that. I'm not going to give you a contract because where are you going to go from here? And somehow, if I were interviewing him, I would have said, you got a fair amount of your parents were supportive. They didn't abuse you you got a fair amount of neutral to negative feedback in life. And yet you just kind of just kept going on. <laughs> um, and I know in my own case, if I said to my mother, Sarah, well, I made this outreach to another person. My mother would just laugh and say, well, they, they just missed out, you know, right. How, what do they gain by ignoring or rejecting you. Just keep There's on. And and that's a big thing. That's that that's the big thing is, um, and and something that we try to instill or get people to think about is that, you know, all of these questions come down to I'm uncomfortable. I want value, and although it could seem counterintuitive, it doesn't really to me. And and usually once you once you think about it, it it's not counterintuitive. Um, providing about how you are being valuable to other people, and. The fact that you are doing something that you value for some reason actually allows more value for yourself. So, you know, if interacting with them, you're investing it with value. If it's not always picked up, well, they're missing the value in it, you know? As long as um as long as you know that something that you're doing is good for someone and interesting to someone, whether that's you or that's people in your community. And I'll, I'll try to wrap it up so we're not here all day, but uh, intimate relationships is the big is the big one uh, for people, you know, in an older age, I think the, and I'm not, I'm not 60, you know, I'm not 65. So I don't know what dating life is like at 65, but LPP clients will say, yes, intimate relationships, important. Although I'm starting to feel this might not happen again. On one hand, I'm I'm old and the fling experiences and opportunities are becoming far and few between. And um, on the other hand, it's hard for me to even get past the, the hurt of lost relationships in the past and trying to start a new one, which I might fail. And so that on one hand gets back to, look, how can you reconcile the, the shame, the embarrassment, the fear of doing something? And the other part is, um, I'll usually ask people, you want an intimate relationship because I don't want people to think that we've set rules or steps like 12 steps. LPP isn't that. LPP is asking reflectively, do you have these things in your life? Do you want these things in your life? 
could you improve on these things in your life? How could you? And so I kind of turned back the question to square one. You want intimate relationships? And sometimes people will say, I mean, it seems right. I don't know if I really do or not. So maybe something like friendships are the intimate relationships that people are looking for. Um, if someone is looking to start an intimate relationship or a companionship with somebody, then, you know, I might, a tactical thing is the same way that you promoted a colleague to a friend or an acquaintance to a friend. Is it possible to promote a friend to something more intimate? Uh, starting with starting with friends for the sake of friendship and then perhaps allowing a friendship with a woman or, or a man to turn into something more like companionship. If it's a good enough friend, then a step you could take, well, you're kind of getting ahead of the game in terms of communicating with them about things that are personal. That's a good friend, you can do that, and of your feelings. And so if you're developing a feeling for somebody else in a companionship sort of way, then a good friend, you ought to be able to have that conversation. And so that it's at least, you know, putting yourself out there and not saying this is futile. But it's possible that an intimate relationship like a spouse, a girlfriend, something like that, maybe that's not what somebody wants per se. And maybe if they don't get that or have that, there are other ways, as you've been saying, to incorporate your intimacy, your friendship with other people um, into something big enough that it takes care of those things you would want in an intimate relationship. I think you put that really well. And, and we are circling back. Um, meaningfulness and openness, which implies a certain amount of lack of discrimination are two sides of the same coin. It's almost like you're saying, well, you're not going to have a lifetime marriage with children at the age of 65. So maybe you should just look for companionship and friendship and right. whatever is available is some kind of human contact and you'll feel good about it. And ironically, sometimes when you open yourself in that way by quote, lowering your standards, you actually maximize the chance for improving that right. intimacy. Right, right. Good point. Um, I will actually end on this because this is something that I, I fancy about you and I think about um, you in particular, Stanton, in your situation. This is, a, this is a quote from a single person, but it's a thing that comes up. Okay, financial stability, getting your finances in order. The quote says, this is the thing that I worry about the most. I'm worried about retirement. I don't have enough to retire on now. I can't work forever. Well, can I? I'm worried that my addictive involvement, let's say, is cutting into my financial stability. So I know I need to reconcile that. And even paying for this program, I could say is throwing money that I could be saving, although I hope it helps. So how am I going to think about saving money as a 60-year-old? So in other words, to put that plainly and succinctly, I, Zach, I'm 36 and have invested tons of money into a retirement fund and I have a really good start and I'm looking 30 years ahead to when I'm this person's age and that will have accrued interest and blah, blah. This person's just getting started at 60 and he's thinking about financial stability means retirement and retirement to me should be right around the corner chronologically, but I can't even get my head around that. So, you know, how to, how do I even think about finances in a way that's not going to stress me out? Well, I, of course, I'm looking at that from the other beyond, but you certainly, I'm more than twice your age and even that person, I'm 77. 
And I, I wouldn't say I've got the rest of my life guaranteed going forward. Um, and the, you know, first of all, being thankful that I have a place to live and enough resources to do what I want right now. And then conceiving of the future as a bit of a challenge and an adventure. I mean, in a way you're sort of saying, well, I'm not gonna create a new career. Perhaps I'm, I'm not gonna create a new family. Well, thinking constructively about retirement and your old age and using your skills, that's really a whole new challenge in life. And, you know, I'm um, in, in my better moments, I'm kind of looking forward to it. For each of these categories, concerns that people have had, we see we are heading on similar themes. So I'll end it this way um, because I, I this is a different kind of episode. It's trying to bring direct value to people who have specific concerns. But the general message I think we can draw from it is that wherever you are in your life, you can improve if you want to improve it. And sometimes it's not if you think too lofty or too far ahead of yourself then you're getting yourself in this sort of perpetual anxiety. And as you said, sometimes if you can relax and think about what do I have now, how can I look at that optimistically now and how, what little steps can I do to involve myself in making that even better for myself? Well, the worst case scenario in that sense is going to be that you have a pretty good situation. You know, you've taken into account an inventory of all the stuff you have and you're involved in it and it's pretty good. But it could be that the relaxation that you've allowed yourself makes means that oh, these things are flourishing into something that you wanted all along anyway. So it's that's the counterintuitive measure sometimes people have to take. And it's not, it's not, uh, you know, you said lowering standards, and that's what people will recognize. Although it's not lowering your standards really. It's saying, this is life. This is what I have in front of me, and this is what I can appreciate if I put my mind to it in that way. So, well, I think we can end with that. I couldn't improve uh, on that conclusion any more than you've done it, Zach. Well, thank you, Stanton, for indulging me on this one. And thanks to uh, LPP clients for being able to share and being willing to let me share and talk this through with you. Take care. <laughs>